Amen. Amen. Brothers, open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John 19, verses 17 through 27 is our passage for tonight. And the title of the message is Power Under Control within this series of the Passion of Christ. Power Under Control. My dad, I'm adopted, but my, my father, uh, adopted father, was someone who you might describe as a man who really showed me um, in my childhood power under control. Especially when we were younger, we knew, we sort of had an idea as kids, you know, what he was capable of. I mean, he was so huge and massive, even his, his hands, he, he, could, he could palm me in, his, in the palm of his hands. He was just a strong, strong man. And as we got older, as kids, you know, as kids do, and as we begin to mature as teenagers, we, we decided that we were going to test his strength one time. And we went to the lake to hang out as a family, and so we're at this lake, and so we conspired in secret as my two brothers and I. We're going we're gonna, to um, plan to basically attack him and wrestle him in the water and try to get him under the water, Right? And so we're talking about strategy and all of that. And so we basically surprise attacked my, my dad. And I kid you not, within a split second, I found myself flying really, really high, about 10 yards, and then splashing into the water. And it was all, almost as if he was some kind of an octopus or something, multiple arms. He was just tossing us all over the place. And it was just not even any competition for him, you know? He was just a strong, strong man. And maybe you've met people like that, right? Maybe your dad or maybe an uncle or, or someone that you know who you admire. Individuals maybe you've met who, who are, are so capable of causing damage, right? On a physical level. Who have great strength like that. But you know that they show great self-restraint throughout their, their lifetime. But you know what they're capable of if they're really tested and you put them to the test. Well, as we've been learning, even in the Gospel of John, think about this. No one displayed more of this than our Lord Jesus Christ. No one was, was more um, someone that we could describe as power under control than our Lord Jesus. You remember just earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he did when, when the, the, the um, hostile authorities came to arrest him? How when they came to him and, and basically they told him, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, what was Jesus' response? I am he, right? And the he really wasn't there in the original. He literally said, I am. And what happened? Hundreds of hostile authorities just sort of fell all over the place like dominoes. Talk about uh, potential. Talk about unrivaled power. Talk about um, unlimited authority that Jesus had. And yet knowing his purpose, he showed remarkable self-restraint. He showed great submission to his father's will. But he was the ultimate example, Jesus was, of power under control. And here in our passage, John chapter 19, verses 17 through 27, we see again how the, the mighty Son of God, our Savior, allowed himself and submitted himself to his aggressors as they execute him on the cross. He displays great power under control, self-restraint, because this is exactly what he came to accomplish. He came to die on the cross so that our sins might be atoned for. If you look back at uh, chapter 19, verse 14, notice there. It says that this happened, this crucifixion, happened about the, about the sixth hour. 
meaning that it was about noon by now. And then Matthew chapter 27, verse 18 says that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. And we've talked about this, and Pastor Kellen also dealt with this. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but make no mistake about it. Pilate was more, was more concerned about his position and about his political power than anything else. So he succumbed to, to cowardly fear. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Pilate had laid a trap for himself by succumbing to the fear of, of man. He feared the Jews even, and he feared the Roman government. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that Pilate had, had been quite an unpopular governor of Judea since he began stirring the pot with the Jews. And there are examples of this, and the Jews were resentful toward him. And on top of that, the Roman government, because of his wishy-washy leadership, was already distrustful of Pilate's overall leadership. And so they were, he was on thin ice with the Roman government. And so the last thing that Pilate wanted to do at this point was to provoke Caesar any more than he already had by continuing to exasperate the Jewish people. And so this, this played into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders who had the upper hand on Pilate. And at this point, had Pilate cornered. In Pilate's mind, it was either him or Jesus, and it was going to be Jesus. And so because the religious leaders and the people wanted Jesus crucified, Pilate was bullied into sentencing Jesus to death. Matthew 27, 24 says that at this point, Pilate washed his hands before the hostile crowds and said, I am innocent of this man's blood, of the blood of Jesus. And what was the people's response? Do you remember? Jesus' blood be upon us and on our what? On our children, Matthew 27, 25. That's quite a frightening statement to make, isn't it? May his blood be upon us and on our children. And right before our passage takes place, listen to what Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 to 30, which kind of fills in some of the details for us, says. Matthew 27, 26 says that he released for them, that Pilate released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Then if you notice our passage in John 19 and verse 14, it says that it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Pilate says to the Jews, behold your king. Verse 15, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your, your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That was the degree of their hypocrisy. Because they really didn't, they weren't loyal to Caesar, the Roman emperor either, were they? And this was their level of hatred towards Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. Now there is a lot here, but here are three responses, as we, if you're taking notes, that we should have as we observe 
the ultimate example here of power under control by our Lord Jesus Christ here in our passage, okay? Three responses that we should have. Ready? We should, first of all, be in awe or stand in awe of Jesus' utter condescension as he goes to the cross. Be in awe of Jesus' utter condescension. What we see here is, is totally the opposite of what we see in our world, where the name of the game in our world is to fight for your rights, to come at people with everything you've got to get your way. By contrast, look at what we see in the life of our Lord at the end of verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Again, note the the subtle language here that is used by John. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. Think about, again, who Jesus is here. Here is the mighty Jesus condescending, subjecting himself voluntarily to these Roman authorities, subjecting himself to utter humiliation. And you know how what crucifixion was during those days, right? What death on a cross consisted of. It was the most humiliating, shameful, excruciating method of death known to mankind during those days. It was prolonged and painful. The Romans made you carry this 200 plus pound cross on your shoulders and they did it on a public road you you needed to do that so that all could see you doing it. It was very strategic that way. It was not done in private, it was in public, so everybody could see you doing that, passing through on a public street, and everyone would be able to look at you, and they were cautioned and warned not to go the same route and break Roman law. That was what crucifixion consisted of. And so Jesus carries his cross, not on a hill far away, right, as that wonderful song says that we love to sing, and we should, but he carries that cross on a public road where people could see him shamefully hanging on that cross in a few moments. Most believe that this place called the place of a skull or Golgotha was a hill right by the side of the road known today as Gordon's Calvary, just north of Jerusalem. And this place resembles a a skull. And so all of this speaks to Jesus's utter condescension, brothers. And just imagine Just imagine and picture yourself watching this thing unfold. Imagine Jesus carrying this 200 to 250 pound cross after the night that he has had. Imagine the emotional pain that he's gone through. Think about that. He's experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane deep agony. Not only for what's to to happen to him physically, right? But because he's anticipating his father's abandonment for the first time ever in his existence. And he's existed forever and ever. He's never been separated relationally from his father. And now Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that his sweat became like drops of blood. Why? Because he's anticipating separation because our sins are going to be placed upon him. He's going to be the great sin bearer and wrath absorber. And so he's anticipating that. Then there's the exhaustion from not having slept all night but instead interrogated and falsely accused and ridiculed by the religious leaders. And if that wasn't enough, there's the physical pain from having been slapped and and beaten and, and flogged by Pilate's men. 
In our last passage, if you remember, we saw that Pilate tried to find this middle ground by having Jesus scourged, and maybe that would appease the wrath of these religious leaders, and Pilate could let Jesus go, but they would not have it. But he had Jesus scourged, and scourges were these wooden handles with leather straps on them, with sharp objects like metal and glass and and bone, etc., And just imagine the type of damage that repeated lashes would make on a prisoner. Sometimes these lashes came upon the face of a prisoner. And so layers of of skin would be torn and blood would be everywhere. You remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ? There were a lot of things about that movie that were not really accurate, even theologically, right? The whole prominence that Mary was given uh, in in this movie about Christ that should have been centered on the Lord Jesus, and then they kind of left out, conveniently, his resurrection, right? The victory that, that Jesus had over sin and death. There were so many things to disagree that we would disagree um, on with regards to that movie, but, you know, the suffering, the physical suffering and pain that Jesus underwent was spot on. The torture that he underwent was spot on. This is what our Savior subjected himself to. Even in his weakness, so much so that Matthew 27 and verse 32 says that a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, helped Jesus by carrying his cross. I mean, if you ever see the real humanity of Jesus, of our Lord, it was evident there in that particular act by this man, Simon of Cyrene. So after all of that, the text tells us in verse 18, if you notice, there they crucified him. What did this crucifixion consist of? Well, the Romans, being expert executioners, had perfected this art of a slow, torturous, painful death by way of crucifixion. And what they did is that they built these these crosses big enough to place a human being on them. And before lifting up the prisoner, erecting this cross, the victim was placed on the cross while it lay flat on the ground, And they would take these long, long nails, six to eight inches in length. Think about this. Sharp, long nails, enough, long enough to be hammered through the wrists of a person. And long enough to to go all the way through that wooden cross. That's what they did to Jesus. So on top of this physical humiliation, there's this, this added pain that Jesus underwent as well. And then there's the the, the humiliation, according to verse 18, that Jesus was crucified along with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And we know who these guys were. They were two robbers, two common criminals, who even while suffering themselves, what were they doing? Were they being really friendly and kind to Jesus? They were ridiculing him. They were taunting Jesus, according to Matthew 27 and verse 44. They were blaspheming his name. I mean, this is as low as it gets. To be tormented and tortured and treated like a, like a common criminal. And brothers, far from us feeling sorry for Jesus, this was why he came. Far from that, we should stand in awe of our Lord Jesus. We should stand in awe of our Savior for what he underwent on our behalf as undeserving sinners. What we're doing is we're treading on holy ground, if I can remind you of this. We're witnessing the utter condescension of Jesus to the, to the lowest point. Paul reflects on this, if you will look with me in Philippians chapter 2. Go there with me. Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul speaking of the type of humility that we ought to have 
as Christians toward one another. And he looks at Jesus and he says, we need to have this mind amongst ourselves as we saw in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind or thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself, verse 7. How? By taking the form of a, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what Paul is saying? You know how far Jesus condescended? He came to earth, first of all. The eternal Son of God came to earth to seek you out. And he didn't come to earth as a king on the human level or as a noble. He came as a servant. That's how far he condescended. And not only did he come as a servant, but he also humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He actually subjected himself to his own creatures to the point of death. Even death, he says, on a cross at the end of verse 8. He's highlighting and accentuating the utter condescension of Jesus. And he's obviously going to say later on, this is the kind of humility that you ought to arm yourselves with. That your Savior came and exemplified for you. May I ask you, brothers, what does that, this do for you? As you see Jesus condescending in this manner, does it move you? Does it grip you? Or does the humanity of the eternal Son of God, has that become just a, something that you sort of take for granted in your life? I want to remind us of that again and again and again because of the tendency of, for us as believers, even sinners saved by grace, to subtly allow our hearts to grow hardened to these great eternal truths, right? So that we're not moved by them anymore. We're not gripped by them anymore. Think about this. We should be in awe of what Christ has done here. You know, I remember one person one time coming up to me after a sermon that I had preached on this issue of the humanity of Jesus and essentially saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. You know, Pastor Kempis, lots of folks died on crosses in those days. And my immediate response to him was, not like Jesus, not like Jesus. They, they weren't crucified. Not like the God-man. Because every single one of those people who died on those crosses, thousands and thousands of them, not only in the Roman Empire, but before that with other empires, all of those people were sinners. They deserved death, even death by way of a cross. But not Jesus. He is blameless and innocent and perfect. Amen? Furthermore, no one who died in those days on the cross died a substitutionary atoning death. They weren't dying for sinners as Jesus died for sinners, as the scriptures claim. You see, Jesus' death was unique, unrivaled because of who Jesus is and because of the significance of that death. As the word of God tells us, it was a substitutionary in our place, atoning death, payment for our sins on the cross. That by faith in him and him alone, in that substitutionary death, we can have life and have it abundantly. No one else who died on the cross during those days can claim that. Amen? No one can. Only the eternal son of God. That's why John chapter 20 and verse 31, the theme verse for the gospel of John says this, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
John says, Jesus' death is unique, unlike no other, by virtue of who he is, so much so that if you believe in him, if you trust in him, if you transfer trust from yourself and any good works that you can claim favor before God, you transfer trust from self to Jesus, you can have life and have it abundantly. Such is the uniqueness of the substitutionary death of Christ. No one else could claim that, brothers. So he's not just another common man. He's the great sin bearer and wrath absorber, right? Who uniquely atoned for our sins. Brothers, this should utterly humble us. That Christ condescended to this extent. We should be in awe of this, right? And as I showed you in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul essentially says that Jesus is the example of selfless sacrifice for others that you, believer, me and you included, should emulate. That as Christ humbled himself that way, we should do the same thing. That as we witness his example, he who had infinite privileges and highest rank, not seizing upon those privileges, but emptying himself, we should do the same thing too, right? We should walk in humility toward others by putting the interest of others before your own. And as we learned at the retreat, brothers, that begins in our home life. Right? For those of us who are married with our spouse, that begins towards our children, humbling ourselves and serving them self-sacrificially. That begins for us who are single, for those of you who are single, in the type of character that you manifest right now in serving other people, preparing yourself, if God would allow you to be married in the future, to be able to sac sacrifice for a wife, right? Because you putting a ring on that woman's finger doesn't change your character all of a sudden. If you're not cultivating humility like Jesus and laying down your life for other people and displaying self-sacrificial self service, what's going to change on the altar of uh, that day when God provides a wife for you? If you're not cultivating that right now, so this begins in our home. It should also extend onto the world and into the church where we put the interest of others before our own. Listen to me. Too many of us as men are more concerned with what we can get from others, what we can get from the church, what we can get from our spouses, what we can get from our kids, what we can get even from our neighbors and other people more than what we could give to others. But it needs to be the other way around, brothers. Jesus came and became poor for our sake, according to Acts chapter 20. He became poor for us, right? That we should follow the same pattern as well. I love what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says. For the love of Christ controls us. This is a story of every believer or should be the story of every believer. The love of Christ should control you because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, speaking of Jesus, therefore all have died, and he died for all, speaking of Christ, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Christ, who died for their sake and was raised. You see that? One implication of Christ's condescension and his giving of himself for you and you having life abundantly through faith in Jesus Christ is that you would no longer live for the great idol of self, for self-worship, but that you would lay down your weapons and submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in all aspects of life, right? In all aspects of life. No longer living for yourself. And as I exhorted the men at the retreat, and so did Pastor Anthony Kidd, 
Listen, whatever that secret area of your life, whatever that secret struggle is that no one knows except God knows, whatever that area is that only you know, God wants that area of your life. He will have no rivals in your heart. God wants that secret sin, brothers. God wants you to confess that secret struggle. Why? So that he can help you if you come broken and fallen before him, seeking to confess your sins. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Amen? And then there's help with other brothers who love you and care about you so that you would be able to mutually bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is what Christ's sacrifice teaches us, right? Humbling ourselves, following the example of the Lord Jesus. And so we should be in awe for multiple reasons. Jesus' utter condescension. But secondly, as we witness what transpires in this passage, we should secondly long for Jesus' ultimate vindication. We should long for Jesus' ultimate vindication. You say, Pastor Kempis, where is Jesus' vindication here in this passage? Well, notice that I wrote for you Jesus' ultimate vindication, right? And yet we do see temporary vindication here, don't we, in this passage? Notice in verse 19, it says that Pilate also wrote an inscription. This would have been some type of placard above Jesus' head. And he put it on the cross, verse 19, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. If you put all four Gospels together, the placard read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And oh, this does not make the Jewish religious leaders happy, right? Look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. I mean, Pilate didn't want anyone to miss this, right? These were the three most prominent languages of the day. And especially with pilgrims uh, coming into Jerusalem for the Passover, Pilate doesn't want, doesn't want, wants everybody to be able to read this particular statement about Jesus. Verse 21, so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. In other words, be careful with the wording there, Pilate. We don't want anyone to be confused. Don't put there that he is the king, only that he said he was the king. Falsely is the implication. They object. They want Pilate to change the wording. Verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, here's where some people read this, right? And they really try really hard as they work through the narrative of the passion of Christ, even before Pilate. And when they read this, some folks really want to be sympathetic towards Pilate. Uh, you, know, he, you know, he really meant well after all, this Pilate guy. Well, you may not want to do that and be so quick, quick to give him so much credit. Just think about the cowardly and weak character of this man that he displayed. Think about it. There was good evidence historically that Pilate lacked judgment by constantly stirring the pot unnecessarily with the Jews of his day. He was a, a wheeler and a dealer politician who loved to wield his, his power and authority, loved to stir the pot. He was willing to do anything to advance himself politically. He was a people pleaser, this Pilate. He was a pushover with his wife. He was a pushover with the religious leaders. All along the way, as he tried Jesus, at least intellectually, he knew that Jesus was innocent. 
He knew that. But he cared more about his position, more about his power, more about his reputation, more about his name before Caesar and before Herod and others than about true justice. So at the end of the day, he gave that up, and he was a lousy judge who didn't really perform justice when it came to Jesus. He became friends with Herod, according to Luke 23, verse 12. He became friends with Herod after Herod essentially brutally tortured and ridiculed Jesus. On that day, Luke 23, verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends. They had been rivals up until that point. And then, so trying to be diplomatic, he sought a, a middle ground with the Jews by having Jesus scourged. We already talked about how brutal that was. All of this. Brothers, Pilate was, was guilty of. And now here's him officially condemning Jesus to death. He supposedly washed his hands of Jesus' death, but he's still guilty before Almighty God, right? And so be careful not to give him any credit. Think about it. He's condemned Jesus to death. He has brutally crucified Jesus, this Pilate. Listen, the truth is that there are people like Pilate in our society today, aren't there? People who intellectually give lip service in our society to certain truths about the Bible. They might even acknowledge who Jesus is to a certain extent or another. But when push comes to shove, they don't submit their lives to Jesus. What do they say? These kinds of things. You know, he's good enough for you. I'm so glad that you are a good Christian, but that doesn't work for me. I've had people say that to me when I try to evangelize them, tell them about Christ. He's your king, but hey, don't try to impose him on me. You can live for him, wonderful, but I'll live for Buddha. I'll live for Muhammad. I'll live for Confucius, whatever the ideology is. They're not willing to submit themselves to, to Christ. You see, like Pilate, people love their autonomy, don't they? That's what Pilate wanted. He wanted power, prestige, position. He wanted to be autonomous. He wanted to be independent from God and any rules that God might place upon him as his creator. And at the end of the day, he loved his position and prominence more than submitting himself to Christ. And as I thought about this, you know what comforted me? That one day future, brothers, all of this will end. Amen? As I pondered all of this humiliation, I kept longing in my heart for the Lord's ultimate vindication. Don't you, as you read these narratives? But you know that this is exactly what is necessary. Jesus is the great trailblazer, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But this isn't the end right here. One day, the first time he came as a lamb, one day he's going to return as a what? As a lion to judge the living and the dead. This is not the end of the story. Psalm 2 speaks of this, where there the, the rebellious nations are, are in an uproar, right? Questioning the rule of God. And then it says that the Lord laughs at them. He doesn't laugh with them. He laughs at them, right? And he says, I've installed my king upon Zion. And who is that? The eternal son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. And then it says, in the light of that, in the light of the fact that God has installed his king upon Zion, you need to worship him. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, Psalm 2. So one day, the king will deliver the final death blow upon his enemies. And brothers, we should long for that ultimate vindication. And the more that we see the, the chaos and the devastation in our society, 
the more that we should be diligent, not only about saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, but also, brothers, calling sinners to repentance all the more. I would love to, for a show of hands right now, for you to tell me how many of you actually, just in the last month, have actually taken an opportunity to share Christ with somebody. To tell, yeah, praise the Lord. It should be all of our hands, right? We should be lifting up our hands and our feet, right? Because that should be, if we're longing for Jesus' ultimate vindication, then we should long for more sinners to be saved by grace, to be added to that heavenly choir as well. May we never say, come, Lord Jesus, come, and nail those sinners. May we say, you know what, come, Lord Jesus, come, and while we, we wait for you, I want to share Christ all the more. I want to share the message of the good news, of the saving message of Jesus all the more. Lord, send me more divine appointments. Send me more people that I can preach, who I can preach the gospel to. See, if we really long for this ultimate vindication, we should also long to share the gospel with sinners so that they would be saved by grace. Amen? Thirdly, thirdly, brothers, not only should we be in awe of Jesus' utter condescension, long for his ultimate vindication, but thirdly, we should appreciate Jesus' kind consideration. From top to bottom, verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Hmm. They haven't had enough, have they? They're not satisfied with, with all they've done to humiliate Jesus. They now strip him of his clothes. They're vying to see who gets his attire. But once again, as John has told us throughout, there is a greater reason why these wretched men are doing this, right? Look at verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's a reference to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, where about 1,000 years before or so, the psalmist foretells of the casting of lots that would take place for the Messiah's clothing. And John the Apostle is telling us, hey, as hideous as this looks, don't forget that this is what God said would happen, precisely what happened. And so again, we see the faithfulness of God, the absolute sovereignty of God in all that's happening to King Jesus. This is exactly as God had purposed would take place. He's absolutely in control. What I want you to notice is this in particular, how in the midst of all of this ridicule, I want you to notice the end of verse 24. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, speaking of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Suffice it to say, all of these ladies were huge, instrumental in the life of our Lord. Right? Our pastor Pastor Mike spoke about the importance of women in, in Scripture a couple of weeks ago. And here we see the, a great example of these. This, these women were always near Jesus, were always serving Jesus. They were strategic through thick and thin. They were always by the side of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even now, here they are next to him, even in his greatest moment of suffering. Not even Jesus' disciples have the guts that these women have at this moment, right? Right? John then focuses our attention on one woman in particular, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Most believe that this is John the apostle, right? The human author of the gospel of, of John who Jesus addresses. The one who back in John 
13.23, we're told about this disciple whom Jesus loved. John addresses himself this way. And so this is none other than John, one of the three who were part of that inner circle of, of Jesus. And notice, Jesus commissions John the Apostle to take responsibility of caring for his earthly mother, Mary. And you understand that in those days, you can imagine women were largely dependent upon others for their well-being and survival, for family, right? And so now with Joseph gone, the earthly father of Jesus, and Jesus now departing, Jesus charges John to take care of his mom. Boy, I find this act by Jesus, brothers, astounding. I find that incredibly kind and considerate of our Lord Jesus. Of all the things to appreciate about our Lord, here's one that should be at the top of our list, that amidst his own suffering, his own time of pain, his own time of trouble, Jesus is still thinking of other people. Here, his own mother. He's always mindful of his own. Remember in John 17, in the high priestly prayer of our Lord? how he prayed for, his, for the protection of his disciples and his future followers. And then in John 18, 18, he says to the hostile authorities in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you seek me, let these men go. He was always protecting his own, always considerate for others, even in the midst of his own trouble from a human perspective. And so we should be moved by a sense of appreciation for Christ, for our Savior's kind consideration of, of others' brothers not thinking about himself even in this moment. We understand this type of appreciation on the human level, don't we? It's like growing up with someone you admired, whether your dad or your mom or a sibling or perhaps like a, a spiritual leader. Those people stand out to you, those spiritual heroes, because of their heroic-like character as they tenderly cared for you and were considerate toward you. They were always there to serve you. You admired them because of their selfless mindfulness of you. That you were always in their thoughts. Well, how much more Jesus, brothers? How much more Christ, who in the midst of his own pain is kindly considerate here? And obviously, building on this admiration that we should have for our Lord Jesus, we should emulate his example, right? First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 is such a key verse for you to constantly have in your mind as we walk through the passion of Christ. First Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Men, we're called to follow in the steps of Jesus. Even as we behold the glory of Christ and the, and, and the passion of the Christ, and we think about, it, about him, we should be learning lessons about the way that he even cared for other people and he was considerate toward others. Showing kind consideration for those, even the least of these amongst us. Not being fixated with our own needs and wants, but thinking about how we can be serving other people and bear their own burdens. As I told you, we, got, we just got back from our retreat, our Men Resolve retreat over the weekend, and a huge emphasis at the retreat was on the need for us to be leaders. That as men, in fact, we've been called to lead. Do you remember that? Fame, that statement, brothers, that for Friday night, our isness determines our oughtness. Remember that? That who we are as men determines what we are to do, what we ought to be doing, mean, meaning that we ought to be leaders by virtue of the fact that you are a man, a male, right? Biblical masculinity says and, and instructs us that you are a leader. 
You are called to lead in whatever capacity. That's really the question. To what capacity? What is that going to look like in your life as a man? But you are called to lead. The question is, what kind of a leader are you? Are you the passive leader? Or are you, the, on the other side, the dictatorial leader? What kind of a leader are you? Are you the, the authoritarian, right? Are you the person who loves to just order people around? Are you the mover and the shaker kind of a person, proverbially, right, in the, from the perspective of our world? Are you the falsely humble leader who, who, in the name of being passive and not, you know, I, who am I? I'm nothing. Are you that kind of a guy? That's not a leader. Or are you going to be like, like Christ, the ultimate leader, following the example of humble servanthood, like the one who came to die for us on a shameful cross? And so I want, you to, I want us to just appreciate, even in the midst of our Lord's pain, his kind consideration for even his own mother. And listen, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that he's showing you kind consideration even tonight. How so? In that he's keeping you alive. In that you're breathing his air. And that you're drinking his water. And that you're walking in his world. He's keeping you alive. And on top of that, you are here listening to this message, right? A saving message. That if you repent of your sins, if you turn from your sins, and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can find forgiveness. You can be reconciled to your maker by faith in Jesus. He will begin a change in your life. You don't change yourself so that you can come to Jesus. You come to Jesus broken over your sin so that he begins the change in you. Amen? Isn't that the story for all of us brothers who are saved tonight? And so he's kind and considerate even toward you tonight that you would be led to repentance by his kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And so this whole scene of Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of power under control of the Son of God willing to voluntarily and willingly lay down his life for sinners. I mentioned that wonderful song earlier, the old rugged cross. And I got to be honest with you, I couldn't help but just keep singing that song in my heart as I studied these last couple of weeks. I was chomping at the bits to get back into this particular chapter in the aftermath of our retreat. And I just kept thinking about that song, The Old Rugged Cross. Let me read you the lyrics. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. And I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Let's pray, brothers.